Welcome to the Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Today, we are excited to be joined by Henry Das. Henry is a serial entrepreneur, author, and a coach for entrepreneurs. His approach to coaching is one that is customized to each client. He also wrote a book called FQ, Financial Intelligence. Yeah, this was a, a really uh, thought-provoking interview in a lot of ways, Bela. Um, you know, we've talked with some different coaches during the series of podcasts that we've done over the last couple of years, and Henry has a slightly different take than some of our previous guests, which I think is great. Yeah, I think you're right, Mike. Uh, he does sort of have a different perspective, and uh, he shared a lot of a lot of those with us during my conversation with him. With him, uh, it was a fun interview. I learned a lot, and uh, so let's let's dive right into my conversation with Henry. Hello, hello, Henry. How are you? I'm good. Oh, I'll put the video on. Hang on. I was, I didn't know if it was video. There you go. How you doing? Um, well, thanks. Nice to see you. Likewise. Uh, looks like okay. Yeah, yeah, very good. Sounds excellent. Looks like you are sequestered in the basement. (laughs) This is my what I call my war room. Yeah. (laughs) Well, how appropriate to be for it to be in the basement. Uh, I've been uh, work. I've been working out of my house for probably fifteen years. So um, yeah, one of these days I'll I'll uh, I'll make it up to terra firma. But for now, it's fine. (laughs) So where are you geographically? I am in New Jersey. I'm about uh, 20 miles from New York City as the crow flies. Oh, okay. Um, how about you? I am in upstate New York, uh, up near Lake oh. George. Up yeah. near Lake George. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, it is nice. Nice, beautiful, sunny day here today. Uh, we got the same here. Yeah, we need to get outside. Go walk the dog. Yeah, excellent. So uh, welcome to the show, Henry. Thank you. So let me ask you a question. If uh, if you're at a social event and uh, you get introduced to somebody and after, you know, hello, hello, um, Mm -hmm. and they ask you, Henry, what do you do? How do you answer that question? Um, You know what? My knee jerk reaction would be to tell them, you know, I'm a business coach and a financial coach and an author uh, that would probably be the, the short log line for that. Although I, I kind of, I kind of don't like that, that question in social events, <laughs> but, uh, it's like, you know, challenge me, ask me something a little more interesting, but I get it, you know, name, rank and serial number. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Here we go. Exactly. Okay. So what is a business coach? So, um, I coach entrepreneurs. So, um, the backstory is I'm a, I'm a 30 year serial entrepreneur and early in this past decade, I decided after I turned 50, I'm 60 years old now, that I was going to take all those skills that I had accumulated as a uh, business owner and a founder, and I was going to help other people and coach them up. Yeah, very nice. Very nice. So when you sit down with uh, a, a new client, uh, somebody who comes to you and says, hey, Henry, I need help, uh, uh-huh. what's the... What's sort of the most common misconception that you see that prospective entrepreneurs have? Uh, Misperceptions in terms of the coaching experience? No, no. About starting their own business, about being an entrepreneur, building a successful business. Um, I think one of the misconceptions, one of the key ones is that there is some sort of playbook that you can follow and it'll guarantee that you will be successful. Uh, Running a business, starting up a business is a lot like being a parent. You, to a large degree, uh, nobody taught you. You might've modeled it from somebody else, but otherwise uh, you're figuring it out on your own. Yeah. So the idea of coming to a coach is, all right, you've been a parent before multiple times <laughs> tell me what to look out for help me through guide me teach me mentor me give me an attaboy i had a i had a client uh, today who who asked me for an atta girl as it was mm-hmm. right she came right out and said you know i need you to pump me up i said yeah let let's do that sorry for for being slow on the uptake uh she needed a little encouragement i gave it to her yeah so. yeah and and so how did you, let's talk about your businesses. 
so sure. uh, well, let's go way back. Let's go back to uh, Henry as a young lad. Where, where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. Um, my, uh, I, my uh, first maybe side hustle when I was about 11 years old was cutting lawns, uh, doing stuff, uh, errands and, and, and uh, chores for um, neighbors on my block or uh, friends of my mom. I remember Mrs. Grabowski paid me a dollar a window to come and clean the windows in her house. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Yeah. It's like, oh, my God, she's yeah. going to pay me a dollar a window? I made like $25. I can't believe how many windows she had in her house. <laughs> and I did a bang-up job, and it was hard work. But it's like, I got 25 bucks. I mean, this is 1970, right? I mean, 25 bucks you could buy something with. I mean, it was – I loved it. I was hooked then. And then I had my first W-2 job. When I was 15, didn't have a driver's license, had to get working papers. I worked at a pancake house and I started as a dishwasher at 220 an hour, which was the minimum wage in 1974. I was 15 years old and I banked over $3,000 working at that place. Um, yeah, I loved it. I worked hard. Like, yeah, let's do this. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. Uh, I, I too started mowing lawns. That was my uh, in the mm -hmm. 14, yeah. 14, 13 year old range. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was when I, where I grew up, you did one of two things. Uh, you either mowed lawns or you babysat. And yeah. if, if you babysat, you got 75 cents an hour. And wow. yeah. I, I could mow a lawn and in an hour I could make like three bucks. <laughs> So mm -hmm. that was like, you know, that was my first IQ test. <laughs> Which one of these two things do you want to do? <laughs> well, you know what? Mowing lawns is hard work. Uh, that's true. I mean, it, it is. You're yeah. out there. I mean, fun. You're out there in the sun, but you've got to, you know, you got to bag the clippings. Um, you've got, you know, there's, there's work that has to yeah. be done there. Yeah. Uh, well, then again, I'm not, to, not to say that babysitting <laughs> isn't hard work. Yeah. To me, mowing lawns was easier than watching some, some, some bratty <laughs> kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm with I'm with you there. I mean, the pancake house was great fun because we all worked there. I mean, there were 50 kids from my high school who were either cooks or dishwashers or bus girls or um, waitresses. So we had a lot of fun. And, yeah. they, and they paid us. Yeah. So it was like, hey, why not? So so that those early experiences were were foundational for you. And Absolutely. and do you think that still happens today? You know, are the are the nineteen and twenty year olds of today, or the you know the nineteen and twenty year olds of ten years from now, are are they having those? Are they having similar types of foundational opportunities that that help that help to establish them for the future? Well, I I think the opportunities are there. Um, but I know from my own experience, um, you know, I have I have three boys. They're 19, 23, and 28. Um, and I'll be honest, I never really encouraged them to work when they were teenagers and they were and they were younger. Uh, although they although they did, my one son he caddied at a at a at a private golf course that a friend of mine belonged to, and I I got him hooked up with that. Um, and he made good money. Uh, my, one of my other sons delivered pizzas. So they, they had it within them to do that. And then one of them asked me, you know, why didn't you ever sort of push us or encourage you? And my answer was very simple. It's like, you're going to do that the rest of your life. From the moment you graduate college, you're going to work for the next 50 years. So why not just take a little time when you're young to smell the roses? I guess it was sort of the opposite of my experience because I didn't grow up in a situation where I had money given to me. I mean, I, I, I don't remember having an allowance. If I wanted money, I think I got a quarter on Sunday after church. Otherwise, uh, in fact, I know I did, and I bought baseball cards with it. Um, but other than that, if I wanted money, I had to go out and earn it. I mean, my parents were, especially my mom, was a depression baby. She was born in 1927, grew up poor in Brooklyn, uh, scratched for every nickel that they made. So they're like, you know, you work, you work, you work. But 
me, it's it's a little different. I mean, I, my kids, I know, will be successful and they'll work hard. They have it. We've modeled it. My wife and I were both entrepreneurs. Yeah. Um, so I think it's okay if you're 20 years old to not stress out about having a summer job. It's great. I'll encourage it if you want to do it, if you want to go work at a camp or something. But it's not mandatory. Yeah, yeah. And at the same time, uh, the opportunities, I, I think, for, for young folks are are boundless. Uh, they, they in, in addition to mowing lawns or babysitting or, or being, you know, working at working at the pancake house, there's all these other things that you can do now that that were very, very difficult or almost impossible in our age. Right. Because of the digitalization of things, because of things like YouTube, there are all these other additional side hustles that that if you have the motivation and the interest, man, you can do. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. You can become an influencer. It's like, what's an influencer? Well, I just go out and I kind of, you know, tout a particular product. And it's like, people will pay you for that? Yeah, like people will pay yeah. real money if you're like, it reminds me of the cool kids. If like you're one of the cool kids and you're seen wearing this thing and you put it on Instagram, whoever produced that thing will pay you for that. Yeah. I yeah. mean, we, we didn't have that. I remember... I bought a bicycle. It was made by Schwinn. It was called a lemon peeler. It was a really cool bike. In fact, if you try to buy one now, a vintage one will set you back probably $5,000. And I always wanted it. My parents would never buy it from me and they uh, for me. And they had a, an ad for it in the local shopper. And they wanted, people were moving. They wanted $49 for this bike. I went up. I walked. I was maybe... 13 years old. I walked to their house about a mile away. I paid the 49 bucks for it. I brought it home. I rode it for about three weeks, uh, got it out of my system, and then I sold it for 80 bucks. I put a little $2 ad in the same shopper paper, and uh, you know, a grown man came and bought it for his seven year old child. And it's like, yeah, it's 80 bucks. And now it's up. And now it's up to 5,000. Yeah, Yeah, I kind of wish I had kept it. But for me, it was like, it was fulfilling this kind of childhood want. There was no way my parents were ever gonna buy that bike for me. So I figured out how to do it for myself and I and I rode it around and I had an arbitrage opportunity and I made 30 bucks on it. It's like, why not? Yeah, yeah. So if you reflect back on, on that early childhood and, and those side hustles uh, that you did, um, what what were the important lessons that you sort of learned from that? Uh, one of the lessons I learned early was, I guess this is kind of a little bit jaundiced, but, uh, the world is not fair, right? I learned, this is kind of a sad lesson, but, um, if you work hard, keep your head down, follow that sort of, you know, Catholic nose to the grindstone ethos, you aren't necessarily going to get rewarded for it. And that was a that was an eye opener for me as a teenager, because uh, I I worked my my butt off, and I really felt like I just wasn't getting the recognition for it. So I learned that lesson. Now it didn't stop me from working hard, but I do remember feeling that um, I don't want to do that when I get older. I want to be one of those people who recognizes people's efforts. And understands that that even though the world may not be a meritocracy, that doesn't mean that you can't be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But look, you, you've done okay. So those those yeah. it, it it may not be fair in the short run, right? But in the long Correct. run, in the long run, I think hard work, uh, motivation does pay off in the long run. Now, oh, yeah. Again, I'm, there's always exceptions no to all question. these things, right? But no, it, I, I'm not. I'm not knocking yeah. hard work. I'm a firm believer of it. When, when, um, you know, in my coaching practice, I make no bones about the fact that I'm a bit of a of a taskmaster. I'm I'm demanding, and if if that profile doesn't fit you, uh, you know, we're we're probably not going to be a match. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the th- it's interesting you you say that because one of the things that that I, I always have told my my students is that you know starting your own business is not as intellectually difficult as you think it is, but it's a hell of a lot more work than you ever thought it could be. Mm-hmm. That's very well stated. 
It, it, it really is true. And in my financial coaching, I tell people, you don't need more than fifth grade math to figure out how to manage and grow your money. Yeah. You don't. You don't and, have to have trigonometry or calculus. Right. It never comes into play. Right. And, and it's really fifth grade arithmetic, not fifth grade math. I'm sorry. Fifth grade <laughs> arithmetic. That duly noted. Right. Just per, for those mathematicians out there who are saying, <laughs> uh, there isn't a differential <laughs> equation around there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Very nice. Uh, so uh, what's, uh, what's your typical client look like? Um, I don't know that I have a typical client. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a couple of years ago, I was in Bangkok at a conference and a bunch of my, my clients happened to be there. I think, like, I think about five or six clients were all at this conference with a few hundred people. So I invited everybody to dinner and we went to this little Thai restaurant, the, um, and I looked around at the table and I realized this is the most eclectic group of people that I have ever seen. Young, old, in between, Americans, Australians. Uh, one guy was from the Netherlands. It was a total mixed bag of people. The only thing that they had in common was me. Um, but putting that aside, um, you know, my personal feeling is about 90% of business is the same. You know, whether you sell SaaS products or 747s, you're still faced with the same challenges. So if I have to if I have to describe the the ideal avatar, the number one attribute that I'm looking for in any potential client is coachability. Number one, you need to be coachable. If it's going to be a struggle and a little bit of pushback is is always part of the process. But if you're if you're the type who's really stubborn and digging your heels in, I'd have to ask, what did you expect out of this relationship? Um, everything else is just mechanical. What's your business? You know, I'm a I'm a affiliate reseller and I do a million dollars a year, but I want to level up and I want to get to five million. You know, that would be that wouldn't be atypical for someone to come to me with that profile. Yeah. yeah. So is there is there a, a typical skill set? Uh, that entrepreneurs are missing? Um, finance. I would say if, if you're going to look for a common thread, certainly of the, of the dozens of folks that I have worked with, many of them, there are a few exceptions, but many of them just don't know their numbers. And, and when you say, yeah, when you say, arithmetic. yeah, when you say finance, can you, can you, can you, uh, uh, peel that back a little bit? Oh yeah. Yeah. Certainly on, on a, on a most fundamental level, balance sheet, income statement, statement of cash flows, right? What is that? Henry, tell me what that is. It's like, this is basic stuff. You don't need to be an accountant, but you do know you need, you do need to know that, you know, you need, you don't, um, have to know all the details. That's what the professionals are for. You do need to understand on a basic level the difference between a capital expenditure and an expense, right? This is the kind of stuff that I consider to be, and I don't want to sound condescending, but this is table stakes. This is 101 stuff that you need to know. Then there's next level stuff. you got to think about KPIs, key performance indicators. How do we measure the, the lifetime value of a customer? How do we know what the acquisition cost of a particular um, customer is, especially when you're dealing with SaaS products that are on the Internet? Maybe hard to measure, but you do need to measure that. Right. And it just goes on and on and on. Are all all these different numbers that come into play, some which are relevant on a day to day basis and some which might be more relevant over a weeks or month basis. But you got to know them. Yeah. Yeah. You know. As you were saying that in, in one of my former lives, I was in the, I was a venture capitalist. I was a managing oh, there you go. managing director of a venture capital fund, and uh, I, I was amazed at the number of folks who came in to pitch us. You know, looking looking for three to ten million bucks. Yeah, and they didn't they didn't even have a set of KPIs. <laughs> right, that's normal. Right, that they they didn't know what normal. their customer acquisition cost was. Right. right? They didn't, they didn't even know what their gross margins were. 
right? Really, and, what are the two things you need to figure out if your business is viable? Cash flow and gross margin, yeah. right? Give me those two things and I can tell you whether you're selling pencil erasers or rocket ships, whether that business has legs. So, so that stuff is really, really fundamental. I'm glad, I'm glad you identified that as one of the, one of the challenges. Now, mm-hmm. you recently wrote a book. Is that correct? I did. Yeah. So tell us about that a little bit. So uh, I'll give you the backstory. Um, I, I, um, I'm a trader. Uh, I manage money for a few other family members besides my family. I, don't, I wouldn't say I do it professionally, but it's a decent-sized portfolio of money. Uh, you know, no one would, uh, would, would uh, turn it away. Um, and I'd always had it in the back of my mind that I wanted to uh, create a course uh, about not financial literacy but financial intelligence, Right. Literacy being I can read and write, but intelligence is what do I do with the, this new skill that I have, the ability to read or write. Um, so I was at I was at a, a conference and um, I was sitting at a table with a bunch of other coaches and we were talking about our, you know, our Jim Collins BHAGs, our big, hairy, audacious goals. And I said, I really want to write a course in in uh, financial intelligence. And they kind of looked at me and said, you know, dude, you're not getting any younger. You might want to get on that you know, in a nice way. Right. And uh, I, I took that and I ran with it and I went back and I started writing this course. So it took me a couple months to write it. And then I tested it with a dozen people. I had a whole curriculum. I was all ready to go. And then a bunch of people who went through the course said, Hey, you know what? You should make this a book. The book will be your lead magnet. And so then I went down that rabbit hole, which is, you know, quite eye-opening because there's a lot that goes into putting a what I what I consider to be a professional book. I've seen what I call pop-up books, where people just create a book and they put it out in the world, and they, it's kind of like the the um, one of the folks in uh, one of my mastermind groups said a book is the new business card, right? So if you don't have one, you're you're playing from behind. Um, and then after I finished that project, I released the book last fall before I was going to a couple of different conferences where I was speaking. And then I launched my course earlier this year. And that, that's how it came about. Yeah. And so what's the name of the book, Henry? It's called FQ Financial Intelligence. FQ being like IQ is intelligence and EQ is emotional intelligence. Well, FQ is financial intelligence. So I didn't invent that. At least I thought I did until I Googled it and realized <laughs> that that concept has been around for a while. But I said, hey, you know what? I like I like the title. I'm going to go with it. Yeah. And where can people uh, find this book? If you go to my website, um, which is uh, www.dasknowledge.com, and you click on the tab that says FQ, you'll, you can find a link in there and you can download it for free. So I, uh, I've been, you know, I've been giving it away, even though I've sold a few copies of it. Uh, I want people to read it. So I'm happy to give it away. The, the real value, in my opinion, is in the, is in the one-on-one course that I teach, the 20-week one-on-one course. Um, but I think you can get value from the book or reading my blog or any of those things. Yeah, great. Well, I will make sure to have that information in the show notes so our, sure. lis- our listeners can, uh, can access that. Uh, so uh, how about this course? How does, one, uh, how does one sign up for this course? So if you go uh, onto my site and go to, um, to the FQ tab, you can, you can uh, hit up a little button that says apply now. You actually have to apply for the course. I don't have a shopping cart or any of that stuff because there's a two-step process. You apply, you, you will fill out a form. Uh, you know, it'll jump you to a form that asks about 25 different questions. And then I get those answers, and then we schedule a call to talk for half an hour, 45 minutes, to get an idea of what your goals and aspirations are. And once we are, um, both of us, uh, believe that we're a fit, then I'll take your money. Oh, very nice, very nice. That, that's how it works. And mm-hmm. and now is this is this course intended for individual? Uh, financial intelligence or for if I'm running a business? This is specifically for individuals. I was originally going to, uh, I was originally going to call it um, financial intelligence for the sandwich generation. And so I pitched that title to my wife and she said, I like it. 
what's the sandwich generation? So I decided, okay, maybe that's not as you you know as universal a term as is possible. Um, sandwich generation, of course, being folks with young kids and aging parents, and they're sandwiched in the middle, and they're saving for college, and they're saving for retirement, and they're paying off a mortgage, and they're worried if mom and dad didn't put enough money away. That's really the sweet spot. But if you're in your 20s, you can learn a lot because uh, I cover pretty much everything I think you need to know from the day you're born till the day you die. Yeah, yeah. Now, what were, uh, what were some of the businesses you started, Henry? So my first business was called Abacus Solutions. I started it in 1991. It doesn't exist anymore, so don't Google it. I actually sold the domain name to somebody about 10 years ago for, I think, about 800 bucks. And we were a, um, uh, an Apple reseller, Apple computer reseller, based in New York City, um, sold Macs, eventually sold servers and PCs. I grew that to almost a $4 million business uh, before the, the bottom fell out of that business uh, during the whole dot-bomb thing at the turn of the century. Um, I had a business that built home theaters. Uh, I had a real estate business where we built multi-million dollar houses. I had a website that sold computer products. Um, I even had a factoring business after 9-11. Um, uh, a lot of businesses, especially the ones in lower Manhattan, couldn't get traditional financing. So I created kind of a pop-up business where I said, okay, I'll use my own money and I'll, I'll finance your receivables. Uh, it was a nice little business, right? So kind of a whole bunch of different stuff. Wow, real uh, real kind of eclectic collection of... Uh... Just like my clients, a collection of businesses. So, so how do how do you? What's your process for saying, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna start a business. I'm gonna start a factoring business. I mean, take us through that. What's your process? So, um, there's a there's a couple pieces. I'm actually writing a new book right now. It has the unlikely title of Codfish. So, what does Codfish mean? Codfish means customer support, operations, development, finance, infrastructure, sales and marketing, and human resources. So those are what I call the seven silos that every business has, right? No, there's no business out there that has six. There's none that have eight. Everything that you need to do within your business will fit into one of these seven silos, right? Um, Entrepreneurs generally will will found a business out of one of those silos, which is kind of the part that I'm that I'm writing right now. So my first business grew out of the customer support silo, meaning the way it started was as an accidental business. Right. There are two kind of businesses, accidental and purposeful. Accidental is somebody said, hey, I need something. And I said, oh, I can do that. And a purposeful is. I saw a need out in the world and I sat down with a piece of paper and I created, say, a business plan and then I executed it. So the accidental business was a friend of mine needed a bunch of Macintosh computers for a client and he couldn't get them. So I did. I went out and I figured out how to do it and he kept feeding me deals. And after 18 months, I did $600,000 worth of business just with this one guy. Um, and then I looked at my wife and I said, Hey, we got to, this is a real business. I'm going to quit my job and, and go. Um, so there, so the process will be different really depending on where you started. Right. So if you were a software developer and you were building an app, you're probably going to come out of the development silo and then you have to add all the other pieces. Some of them as as a solopreneur, let's say you started as a solopreneur, some you'll be qualified to do and some of them you won't, right? Like I said, most, many entrepreneurs, I shouldn't say most, are not qualified to handle the financial side of their business. You know, it's just not in their wheelhouse. Um, But you can hire people to do that. Right. Makes sense? Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. So you said you quit your job. So did you work in corporate America for a period of time? I've had, I had two W-2 jobs in my life. I worked for, uh, I graduated in 81 with a degree in electrical engineering. I worked as an engineer for three years for a large multinational company. And then I talked my way into a job uh, as a programmer 
for a subsidiary of the New York Stock Exchange. Got it. And I started as a programmer. I was uniquely unqualified for it, but they liked me. They hired me. I was terrified, but I'm a quick study. And I yeah. learned it on the job. And uh, and then I started my first business when I was probably around 30. Yeah. Where'd you go to engineering school? Bucknell. Oh, Lewisburg, PA. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. I'm an engineer also. So uh, mechanical. In, Good. In, uh, by, mechanical. Uh, yeah, I'm a mechanical cool. guy. Yeah, yeah. Good for so, you. A few years earlier than you, but... Uh, I love engineers. Engineers are great. A lot of the guys I know in the, in the who are professional traders are all engineers. It really plays to uh, the engineering sensibilities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, uh, that's a nice way of thinking about it. It's a nice way of thinking about it. So uh, when you uh, when you think about... Um, entrepreneurs today and um, what what sort of what do you think the big challenges for them are not not from their own personal skill set perspective but okay. what, what are the big challenges of, of kind of launching a business today given the digital nature of everything everything's online you know things like Amazon and how distribution has changed drastically how how brand building, everything in the last 20 years has changed drastically from how, mm-hmm. how we learned how to do it in school or in business school. Uh, so right. what, what do you think the big challenges are, are for entrepreneurs today? That's a, that's a great, great, great um, question. If I think back to how we started our business, uh, we leveraged personal relationships. Most businesses, uh, many businesses will start that way. If you, were, if you decided you wanted to be an insurance salesman, who are the first people you sell policies to? right? Friends and family. And then you ask them to refer you and then so on and so forth. And that worked for, you know, a number of um, my businesses. But now we're at a state where, you know, I describe the internet as seven and a half billion people screaming, look at me, look at me, look at me all at the same time. Right? So how do you differentiate yourself? That's, that's one of the key sales and marketing challenges. Sometimes people will talk about what's your secret sauce, right? You probably heard that phrase before. Well, a lot of businesses don't have secret sauces. They're they're just selling commodities, right? If you're an Amazon reseller and you're selling, you know, skateboards, there are hundreds of other folks that are out there doing the same thing. So how do you differentiate yourself in this massive confusion? Uh, for some people, they go the influencer route. They try to find uh, someone who can be their advocate, someone with a higher internet Q score or profile than they do, and they hitch their wagon to that. But that always comes with with baggage because you're beholden. Um, again, in the Amazon world, uh, uh, about two weeks, no, it was about a month ago, April 21st, they changed the rules for affiliate resellers and people's commissions were slashed in half. But again, Amazon's the 800-pound gorilla. If you want to play in their pond, they're the ones who are going to make the rules. So that can be um, that can be a little bit daunting. On the opposite side, when I think about what we had to do from an infrastructure standpoint when we started our first business in terms of securing an office space and all the ancillary stuff that we needed to do to run our, our business really before the internet. Well, now there are... T- tens of thousands of SaaS products, you can get to market and start marketing your widget in a week. And you can do it extremely inexpensively. Um, Whatever it is, I use a program called Schedule Once. So my scheduling is all done online. It's easy. It costs something like $19 a month. It's peanuts. Um, So you can cobble that together and you can get to market in in uh, ludicrous speed, right? Spaceballs reference. You can get there. Uh, what did uh, what did Trump call the 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 um, initiative for the vaccine? Warp speed. He went for the Star Trek uh, reference. So that's that's different. We had we it took us months to get our business off the ground. You can do that now in a matter of days. Yeah, which is which is pretty amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how. In some ways, things have gotten so much easier from one perspective and so much more right. difficult from another perspective. 
Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it's kind of a zero sum game, right? So, you know, sales, sales and marketing, you can create a funnel and you can, you know, blast your message out to tens of thousands of people on a daily basis. Uh, you can generate content. Uh, all it takes really is the, is the time to write things uh, and get it out there. And you can become a thought leader within your space um, for not a lot of capital cost. Um, and that's and that's huge. That's a huge, huge advantage. However, where there where there are no barriers to entry, that means anybody can do it. Like in the coaching business, there's no barriers to entry. Right. Anybody can be a coach. Yeah, right? they can just take five minutes and boom, put up a Web page for nothing. You can go to one of those free websites and all of a sudden, boom, you're a coach. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so uh, that that uh, makes me think of the question to you of how have you since you're in a space that's really crowded, very easy to get into, no barriers to entry. How have you right. differentiated your your sort of space? What things have you done to differentiate? Um, another another great question. Uh, I recently redid my website to make it more personally branded, so that it's more about me. Um, as opposed to just something, you know, generic that, that I had done a couple of years ago, um, really trying to raise my profile, uh, and get, get my, my message out. And my message is, is really sort of old school. I'm a 60 year old, 30 year serial entrepreneur who believes that, um, there aren't really shortcuts. I was on a podcast the other day and they asked me, you know, what shortcuts do you have? It's like, ah. I don't have any. I, d I don't know of shortcuts, right? I mean, there's a thrifty way to do things, but there's no real growth hacks, as they call them, right? I think that's what the cool kids call them. Um, they're not. You have to make a plan, you have to execute it, and you have to be nimble and coachable enough to pivot when necessary. If you're if you're a hundred percent wedded from day one to doing this one thing and it doesn't work out, where does that leave you? If you were born and said, I'm going to be a doctor, and I know people who've, who've gone down this road, from the time they were very little said, I'm going to be a doctor. And then what happened? They went through school and ended up with a million dollars worth of debt and came out and, as a doctor and hated being a doctor. <laughs> I mean, that's awful. So you, you have to be nimble, willing to roll with the punches. Just look at what's gone on with the pandemic. I mean, we're in the middle of this and I opened my coaching practice up for April, May and June for free to anyone. Put a big banner right on the front of my site that said, if you want to have a call with me, click on this link, have a call, no obligation, no cost, we'll chat. If you want to have more than one call, and I've had a bunch of, at least a half a dozen people I've had multiple calls with and talk to them about this unique situation where the tide just went out overnight and people in certain vertical markets like the hospitality business or the travel business saw their business go from really, really good to zero. Right. And that's tough. That doesn't happen often, but it's an incredible learning opportunity. I hate to like, you know, try to gloss over it because we're talking about people's lives and people's livelihood, but it's this great opportunity to step back and reevaluate. There's a, a quote from Churchill that one of my clients gave me that I've been using. It says, never let a good crisis go to waste. Yeah. Take the time and reevaluate everything that you thought to be true about how you were doing things. Now's the time to reevaluate and then relaunch or pivot that much better. Yeah. Yeah. So oftentimes, well, l luckily not too often, but uh, on occasion, there are unexpected events that happen in people's lives and, in, and to businesses. This, this whole COVID thing, of course, right? Boom. In, in like sure. span of three weeks, the world changed. Yep. And uh, so if, does you, are there things from a financial intelligence perspective that I can do to help me cushion those types of events when they happen to my business? You know, um, it's, it's difficult. Um, you can do it on your personal side. Uh, you can, you can, you know, you can, there are facilities available for you to protect your downside, but in a business situation, the, the, um, 
the well let's just, just let's just look at the tax code the tax code is set up really to de-incentivize pass-through businesses from holding money, right? 90 plus percent of businesses are S-corps or LLCs, which are pass-through entities. I don't want to get too deep into the into the mud with that. But um, if you're on a calendar fiscal year, December comes around and you want to zero out because otherwise if you hold retained earnings and then, and then um, dividend them out or however else you pay them out, you get double taxation. So there's an incentive to kind of keep to spend certain not parts, save right <laughs> yeah certain parts of your balance you kind of threadbare because otherwise you can get you can get hurt with that most businesses have i read the statistics somewhere on the internet so it has to be true um, 3 weeks worth of cash available to them if all of a sudden their 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 inflow stops i think that's optimistic most businesses are running hand to mouth, even if you're a large business, you depend on cash flow, right? I analyze large companies into my portfolio. Um, and your, your whole dependent on that. your whole factoring business was, <laughs> was based on that premise. Yeah, factoring business. Yeah, I was making about six points on that. I would buy, you know, I would buy a receivable and I had 94 cents on the dollar. I'd made the six points. It was non-recourse. So if the client defaulted, the difference was 9-11 was a centric, uh, you know, was the people who were having a problem getting financing at 9-11 specifically were businesses below Canal Street in New York City. So uh, I could run the credit on somebody in Chicago. I had pretty good surety that they're going to be OK, even though there was a bit of a downturn. This is very different. This is the whole country. Yes. There's no safe haven anywhere. There's right. no place to find. Yeah. Right. So I would think twice about factoring any receivables yet. I believe that um, this will be a very interesting opportunity for alternative financing products out there. Uh, Right now, we haven't seen the the capital markets get clipped, and I hope we don't, because it's the greatest existential threat to our our health as as a country and our recovery is if there's a liquidity crisis, right? Right now, the Fed has basically said, we will never stop printing money. <laughs> we are infinitely backstopping this economy to make sure that there's a free cash flow at the uppermost level. But if it gets, if it gets again, I don't want to get too technical, but if it gets choked off at lower levels, which is what happened at, after 9-11 in that microcosm of, of lower Manhattan, that's a death knell for businesses, right? They need, even if it's just, even if they just call your credit line, Right. Even if you only right. have two weeks of cash, right. if you've got a credit line to backstop you and every client that I've ever had, I've said, listen, if you don't have a credit line, we got to get one now. We are not going to get a credit line when you need it. Then it's too late. We have to do it now while everything is rosy and healthy. And that's just there to backstop you for a rainy day. Yeah. 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 Very good. Hey, Henry. Uh, You've been a great, great guest. Uh, you've shared a lot of really good wisdom and ideas and thoughts. Is there anything that I have not asked you that I should have? Uh, what do I do in my spare time? <laughs> <laughs> More importantly, what is spare time, right? I mean, I can go on for hours and hours, but obviously we only have a half an hour. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's, that would be the only thing. So what do you do in your spare time, Henry? I'm so glad you asked. Um, let me see. I write screenplays and I collect baseball cards and I play golf and I play Settlers of Catan, you know, now that my three boys are home, uh, which is a board game, a really, really uh, cool board game. Um, you know, when I play tennis and bicycle and I like to do, I like to stay active. I like to do all sorts of different stuff. Excellent. Keep my brain plastic. Right? Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah. Not all business all the time. You got to have fun. Yeah. And a variety of things, it sounds like. Variety of things. An eclectic. That would be the theme of, uh, <laughs> right? An eclectic mix of different activities. Yeah, yeah. Well, Henry, hey, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, you've been a wonderful guest. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I had a great time. Thank you very much. Me too. Thank you. Well, Bela, you know, Henry was an interesting guy. Not only is he a man after my own heart because of this Schwinn bike story, which I also had a Schwinn bike that I had a paper out for when I was a, a, a young kid. But, you know, he, he talked about 
uh, his old school approach. I mean, I think he used those words, but he's a, he's a very traditional, no shortcuts, lay the groundwork with a solid understanding of financials, build a strong business by the numbers, all of these things that are pretty textbook. Where do you, I mean, you've done a lot of coaching over the years and, and you don't do it as a business, but I think you do it just to give back to the community that helped you. But um, where do your philosophies and his philosophies about coaching overlap and where are they different? So I think that I, I agree with him on understanding uh, the foundations of your business. So either you or someone else in your business uh, that you trust and you work with very closely has to have a really good understanding of the foundations of your business. And one of the key foundations I feel is, is financials. Where's your money going to? Where's it coming from? How are you spending it? Uh, how, you know, how long does your money last? Uh, what are sort of the, the various key elements and metrics uh, I think that's really important. And let me, you know, a week ago, uh, I was on a conference call with uh, three or four other entrepreneurs for this other event that I do. And um, it's a round table. And, and one of the entrepreneurs there who's been running a successful business for, for eight or nine years um, and is not really a, a financial whiz, uh, hired a CFO in December. And... Uh, Working with that CFO, they've really gotten insight into their business and how the business was performing and understanding where they were spending their money. It was clear they did not have a good understanding prior to the the CFO coming on board. And they made drastic changes in their business because they realized they were spending money in areas that were not generating a return for them, either in the short term or the long term. So here again, sort of this uh, financial uh, intelligence, understanding the key aspects of your business, I think is really, really important. You know, it's like understanding the, the cost of acquiring a customer. How much does it cost you to qu- acquire a customer? You should have a good handle on that. And then, then you can figure out, okay, if it cost me $100 to get each customer, I better generate a lot more than $100 of revenue from each customer. Otherwise, it's not worth it, right? Because it's the margin of that revenue. It's actually the, I got to generate more than $100 of margin, not just sales uh, to make that customer pay off. So understanding the subtleties of this, I think is really important. And that's where I, I really agree with, with, uh, with Henry. Um, he, I think he was spot on on those things. And, and again, it doesn't have to be you. It doesn't, as an entrepreneur, we all have our strengths and weaknesses and it's not like you have to go out and, you know, become an accountant or become a financial manager or a financial whiz, but someone inside the business needs to have a good handle on that. And you as the entrepreneur have to have at least a basic set of understanding and tools so that you can understand what the experts are telling you about your business. How do you think about it, Mike? Yeah, I mean, you bring up an interesting point, Bela, um, because you and I both know plenty of successful entrepreneurs that are not financial wizards. Um, but yeah, all the ones I can think of too, and they have somebody they can trust. And when we bring up the word trust and entrepreneurship, this is kind of a loaded word in a lot of ways, right? Is you get into an entrepreneur because you want to be in control yourself, right? You want to run your own business, you want to be the boss. But if you don't have good financial chops, you really need to have somebody that not only that's inside the organization that knows this stuff, but that you can trust. Um, there's so many ways that things can head south um, when it comes to your uh, collecting the money that you're you're collecting, whether it's cash or credit cards or whatever, uh, managing the expenses, keeping control over the expenses, taxes, making sure the taxes are being paid on time. If it's a state that's doing sales tax or if you have employees that payroll taxes, there's so many little things where somebody inside the organization has to interface with your accountant. Um, so, yeah, so I guess, you know, yeah, you, you've got to know it yourself. And that's, you know, what, trust but verify, right, is the saying, right? And that's why the entrepreneur needs to have, you need to make sure that you've got the either the, the book knowledge, right? You had business classes or you've gone to some training uh, or you can ask your accountant, 
they provide training in these things too a lot of times, right? You have to pay for it, right? But they can hook you up with training. But somehow, whether it's through the Small Business Association in your local town, through the local community college, you have to have enough so you can, yes, trust, um, but also be able to verify. So I I thought that was fascinating. And I do think this idea of having the every every entrepreneur should know income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement is really critical. Um, but yeah, the complexities of tax law, the complexities of um, of managing cash flow, uh, taking depreciation, uh, all these types of things uh, can be can be a challenge. And um, at least if you know, you know what what uh, statement are you talking about, and what are the positive and negative impacts, short and long run impacts, you can ask the right questions. Yep, I think I think that's really critical. So, Mike, the the other thing that Henry and I talked about is this notion of coaching and uh coachability and coaching entrepreneurs um what are your thoughts on on kind of coaching folks i you know i guess you know i've done some coaching in the startup space but i really look at the way i've taught over the last well what i taught my first college class in 1991 you know so really almost 30 years now of 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 teaching at the university level um i've always tried to take a a coaching philosophy in the classroom rather than just lecturing. I like to do project work. So I like to think that I know a little something about coaching between my work with startups and my works in, with my, my students in the classroom. Um, and the word coachability is really interesting because I guess the way I see it is if I'm looking at a person and judging their coachability, it's really my perception of their coachability. And I think there's a difference between when I perceive somebody to be coachable and whether they actually are coachable. And really, when I think of coachability, I think of, okay, if I invest time in this person, are they actually going to listen to what I say, <laughs> right? Um, are they actually open to get different viewpoints? Are they actually willing to do what it takes to maybe look at their business a different way? Um, are they willing to think differently and maybe think, okay, even though their idea is fantastic, maybe there's a better or a different way to do this? Um, are they thinking about things from their customer's perspective, from their employee's perspective, from the communities that they're operating in perspective? These are the things that I evaluate as kind of coachability, right? Open and willing to consider and think and 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 date. doesn't matter if they agree with me or not. I don't care. I just want to make sure that most of the time they're A, listening and B, thinking about it. Otherwise, it's not worth my time. And here's what I think. I've taught a lot of students and I've coached a lot of people. I think that the idea that some people are coachable and some people aren't is somewhat of a misnomer, okay? I think it's that people have to behave as if they are coachable, and then most people, I think, are open, right? There are a few. I mean, I can, we can both think of examples, I think, of people who truly aren't interested in listening to anybody but themselves, and those people are a, a, not a good investment of time. But I think that most people really, if you tell them, hey, here's how you, here's how you should approach being coached. Here's how you should approach being mentored to make the most out of that opportunity. That I think is worth a conversation worth having. What do you think, Bela? Yeah, I, I think so. And, and there's two points I want to make here. Uh, the, the, the first one is that, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, that means you're more than likely really passionate about something. You have strong beliefs and you have strong convictions, right? I mean, that's what got you there. That's what gave you the confidence to the self-confidence to start a business uh, to raise money, to sell a product, design a product, right? And to do this leadership role that you have as an entrepreneur. But we have to remember that should not drive you to shut out input from others. You should still need to be open to other people's opinions. Yours are, yours are important and maybe more important than other people's, but you have to at least open yourself up to being receptive to those opinions. And I think you bring up a great point, Mike, in that uh, whether you actually use other people's advice or not is up to you. But I think you want to at least make sure that you are approachable and other people feel comfortable giving you or sharing with you their thoughts and ideas about, about what's going on in your business or how you can improve your performance. You know, the second point I wanted to make, which is related to this, is I find it interesting in that in sports, we have coaches all the time. As a kid, when you start playing football or soccer or baseball, you have a coach and, and you have it as a five-year-old. 
And then as you progress through the ranks and as you get older, you have a coach. And even at the top level, the professional levels, whether you're talking about tennis players, you know, who are individual players, they all have coaches. Whether you talk about golfers, whether you talk about football players, soccer players, all the sports, even at the utmost top levels, they all have coaches that are another set of eyes watching their performance and helping them to improve their performance, making comments, making suggestions. And it's interesting that in the business world, we don't really do that, but we do it in sports. It's ingrained in sports. But for some reason, once we sort of finish our our formal education, if you want to call education sort of an element of coaching, we sort of stop and we say, okay, I got everything I need. I'm going to be able to, I'm going to figure out how to do this. And I, I think uh, there's a lot for us to learn there from sports because it's coaching is embedded in, in even formula one drivers right who are you know they're, they're yes they're part of a team but they're driving these cars they have fitness coaches they have performance coaches they have psychology coaches right they have all these folks that are helping them deal with the pressures of the game the pressures of being an entrepreneur are tremendous right you're starting a business and 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 sort of coping with that and then and being another set of eyes and another input into what they're doing. Because sometimes it's hard for you to understand. And I've, I've done this many times where I have said something or done something which got interpreted probably because of how I said it in a totally inappropriate, not not in the intended way. And someone had to point that out to me to say, hey, Bela, you really screwed up here, right? You said this in such a manner because of the tone of your voice, the inflection in your voice or the look on your face or the way you waved your arms or whatever, that it got totally the wrong message out. And I was like, oh, Jesus, I didn't realize that. So I think that's, a, that's why coaches are really, really important or, or having confidants that you can trust, right? It doesn't need to be a formal coach. It, it could be some confidants that are going to give you honest feedback, not, not yes people, <laughs> Right. Uh, that, that always feather you up and say, hey, you're doing a great job, but sort of give you honest feedback on what you're doing. I know that's sort of my thoughts on that, Mike. Yeah, there's two parts to it. It's one is surrounding yourself with people who will give you constructive, critical advice. And then the second is being open to it. And, you know, it's interesting. There are cultural differences here. So living in Germany, this is a place where um, we give each other very direct feedback, very critical feedback. And that's consider the socially acceptable thing to do if we're like oh this was really good and you didn't mean that that's actually rude here and the the german students love when we watch videos or i tell them about how u.s people give feedback to each other right and we have this like sandwich thing right it's first i have to say something really nice to you like oh bela you know the slides that you made were beautiful and then i can be critical and i'm like well maybe you should think about right this okay and then I say, oh, but in the end, I really liked what you said. And, you know, your, your suit was great, too, by the way. Right? You look fantastic. Right? And that's feedback in the U.S. And in Germany, it'd be like, look, you know, I didn't understand slide two. The writing on slide three was really small. I didn't see the connection between slides two, three, four, and five. The analysis at the end, I thought, was incomplete. Okay? And, and I think you can improve all these things. And that's it. That's German feedback. And, even though, and to a U.S. person, I think that would sound really harsh, right? For, especially from somebody who didn't know so well. So I think, you know, the, the point is, is that one is you have to, the first step is, is being able to, even if you, you're passionate about your beliefs, as you said, to say, you know what, I need to surround myself with people who are either smarter than me or at least have a different perspective for me. And I have to go out and seek that coaching, that mentoring, those friends, right? I mean, one of the reasons I, I like you is because I think you're smarter than me and you have all these different experiences than me. And I like the advice that you give me. And I like hearing what you tell other people. And this is, I learn from you, right? And I like to surround myself with people like that, whether they're younger or older or the same age doesn't matter. But it's like this mix of opinions that look at the world differently than the way I do. And I think you got to seek those out. And then the second thing, and this is hard for a lot of people I know, is to take that critical feedback and be appreciative and say, yeah, I need to think about that. Might not agree that I should do this differently, but thank you for pointing this out and let me really think about this. And it, I'll be honest, it took me, I wasn't naturally like that. I was very thin skinned when I was young. I'm still probably thin skinned, but I was more thin skinned when I was younger and criticism stung me. I was used to like, you know, 
doing really well in things. And, um, and once I started being a lot more open, I think going to grad school and writing papers and getting them rejected from journals is really good, right, for that. Um, and teaching all the time and getting teaching evaluations every, every semester, really good for that, right? And owning a business and having it not go well is really good for that. So over time, life helps, I think, thicken your skin and make you really appreciate when people are in good faith trying to tell you to do things a different way. And I think that um, that I think that's really the key that I think listeners should really think about is this idea of coachability just means a actively seeking out different voices than yours and b being open to listening doesn't mean you have to do it. I mean, we both kind of echoed that you don't have to follow everything your coach says, but I think you owe it to your coach to actively listen and think about it and ask questions. Well, OK, why do you think this? Why do you believe this? Or can you give me some examples? Um, are there some alternatives? And, and think about that. But I think that's really important. And it might be simple as taking notes when somebody's talking with you. I drill my students into that. When they're pitching and they're talking to venture capitalists or angel investors or whatever, even the simple act of writing down when somebody's giving you critical feedback really sends a signal that you're, you're open and you're coachable and they're going to be willing to give you more feedback and to help you just by bringing a pencil and a piece of paper, right? Simple stuff, okay? Following up with some questions or at least a thank you. Thank you for spending the time with me and giving me that feedback. I really appreciate it. Whether or not you follow the advice or not, but that's going to get you more feedback in the future. And remember, coaches usually have big networks, right? So if you're a jerk, right, or you come off as being a jerk, you're not going to get any more help. But I think if you show genuine appreciation to somebody who's giving you coaching or mentoring advice, um, that, that's that's going to help you in the long run. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, you know, I I was thinking well said. First of all, well said, Mike. And and I was I was thinking about uh, healthcare. <laughs> and and that when uh, you go to your doctor and the and the doctor says, "You know what? I think you're going to need surgery for this." What do we do? We often go get a second opinion. Right? We get another data point. Right? That that either concurs or gives you a different data point. Uh, and I think this is the, this is analogous to that, right? So I have my opinion about how to approach a problem. I have my opinion on how to solve this uh, within my business. And having at least one other data point from somebody else is helpful, right? It either helps reinforce, uh, and, and being an engineer, you know, I like a lot of data. So, uh, you know, I like to get two or three data points and, and try to figure out, okay, is my, what I'm trying to do here an outlier? And, and that may be fine. Right. Oftentimes what we do as entrepreneurs, we are outliers and that's OK. But you want to understand the context in with in which you're making that decision. And that's where getting other data points is really helpful. And, and I think that's part of being open to coaching, both formal coaching, informal coaching and having mentors. It's all sort of very similar from from that aspect. Um, they're giving you more data. They're giving you more. And you have to process the data and you make the decision. D don't let coaches tell you what to do. Use coaches as input to so that you can then process the data and make the decision that you think is right. Yeah, there are bad coaches, right? Sometimes you have to walk away from a coach and find somebody else. But this is why it's actually good to get not only a second opinion, but a third opinion. And I'll tell you, uh, one of the businesses that I was involved in, um, it needed that, right? The first people that we were listening to after we listened to them and it didn't work and we listened to them again, it didn't work, okay? And we realized we might need to go get some other opinions. And then we went out and sought other opinions and other coaching, right? And found the right people that gave us better advice. And, you know, that doesn't mean that we told those, the first coach people that were giving us guidance to screw off or anything like that. We were really nice. Um, but then we naturally gravitated towards people that gave us much better advice. And that's how, you know, the business got turned around. So I think that, you know, that's the other thing is, is um, even the, 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 the third opinion, I think is important. Right. And the fourth opinion in, in this, um, your startup is your baby, right? And you need the best advice that you can get. Um, you know, and it's the same thing, right? It's like, it's, it works the other way. If, you know, if a coach tells me to do something, I'm like, no, I know better and I do it. And then it doesn't work. And then I go back to that coach and I'm like, oh, here's this other problem happening. And they give me a, a piece of advice and I don't follow that and it doesn't work. You know, I should probably pay a little closer attention to the third time, right? That this person's telling me something that I need to hear. 
So there's these two streams, right? One is, is, you know, listen to somebody when you don't follow their advice and it doesn't work, but you might need some different voices when you follow somebody's advice repeatedly and it doesn't work. So I guess there's a little more to it. Maybe I made it sound a little simple um, a few minutes ago, but. No, it was good, Mike. It was good. Well said. So what do you think? Time to wrap this one up? Yeah, let's wrap it up. Um, I can wrap it up. So thanks for joining us this week, listeners. We hope that you found the last 45 minutes or so interesting and thought-provoking. And of course, if you have questions about what we discussed, uh, please get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And hey, do us a favor. If you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, please do. There's usually a subscribe button in your favorite podcasting app. So until next week, signing off from upstate New York. Hey, Mike, have a great week. Thanks, Bela. From over here in Münster, Germany, I wish everybody a great week as well.